No, we're continuing our, our next guest is in studio and I suppose a link with with Brown Dawn and the last guest is that uh, our this guest has been um, John under the baton of Johnny O'Brien as well. He has indeed and uh, coming from uh, an extraordinary community yeah. parish in Ogunlo. Yes. And so many things happened. I was I was sitting by the fire last night thinking about um, talking to Michael, you know, and uh, I was going to ask him, was there a lot of money made out of horticulture in O'Connell? We're talking now to Michael McNamara, who, uh, from O'Connell, retired uh, principal, retired teacher, yeah, and uh, as well as that, uh, our correspondent in O'Connell. Course. So we brought him into the studio today. Good morning, Michael. Gentlemen, how are you? <laughs> morning, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, the, the horticulture part. The horticultural history of that. Yeah, it, it was. It was huge, sure, in Ogunalo. I suppose going back from the beginning of the 1900s, um, potatoes, the growing of potatoes in Ogunalo was the the main income for um, all of the people in the parish. And I suppose one of the things about um, the growing of potatoes, O'Gunnell had a, a sandy soil, yeah. which was yeah. um, which was needed, I suppose, for the yeah. growing of potatoes. Yeah. Potatoes doesn't, or the heavy soil doesn't suit potatoes. Mm. So the soil in O'Gunnell was absolutely ideal, and um, they they sowed the potatoes each year. And I suppose from the early 1900s, they took the potatoes into Limerick by horse and car. So they'd have about maybe a half a ton of potatoes and a horse and car. They'd start um, about 12 o'clock at night time. The journey. The journey in, yeah, <laughs> with the horse and car. And um, they'd be there at about 6 o'clock in the morning. And they'd sell the potatoes there and then walk back home again. It was hardly going, but it was... Uh, was a great way of, of making uh, an income. But there were tough times at the time. When you go back to, we'll say, the beginning of the 1900s, and I, I remember my mother telling me a story. She had a brother, Mick. And um, yeah, at the time, sure, there was no employment for any young lads at the time, but Mick was, it was Mick's turn to go to Limerick on the Saturday morning. Roughly what year? Roughly, not very I, You'll be talking, I suppose, at this time now, I suppose, 1923, okay. 24, somewhere in around that stage. A hundred years maybe, ago. Yeah, it is, yeah. Maybe a couple of years after that. But um, Mick, of course, he had no money. They had a field and it was in, in the middle of Hanish Wood. And uh, I remember the field well. I worked in it myself. And they had potatoes sown in the field. So Mick needed some money. So he went in on the Friday evening. Father never knew anything about it. And he dug a bag of spuds. Now, the bag of spuds at that time was a 200-weight bag. And it was about a half a mile, let's say, out through the fields. He took it for himself. Never told the father, of course. And when it was dark, went in and brought out the bag of spuds. Carried them on his, on his shoulder now all the way out from the field and left him inside the ditch at the side of the road so yeah. that he could collect him on the way into Limerick in the morning. And that 200, which I suppose, was his pocket money for possibly two weeks or so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the father never knew anything about it at all. But... Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's a serious uh, venture 
the whole the whole parish seemed to get involved. In oh, there were, were. Every, everyone, John, in every farmer in the parish was involved, mm. and anybody that had a bit of land, it was their it was their income, and it was the it was the main income. And with the with the with the with the comparing, let us say, the average income in Ogunlow in 1920s, we'll just say take that as a, comparing that to what was the average income in Scarif farming area. Was well, I, I can I'll give you an idea now in in a minute as to what way it was and how much they were actually making, and um, the the horses and cars went. Um, they used them, I say, up to about nineteen twenty five, mm-hmm. and then after nineteen twenty five, they started with the lorries, and Connie Dunahoe, I suppose, was the main man. There was a couple of lorries. Minehan uh, was another man. And they used to collect the potatoes then on the Friday evening and they deliver them into the market for the Saturday morning. So everybody would have the potatoes dug on the Friday evening. They'd be collected. And um, that continued on, I, I suppose, until... Yeah, it was in about the 1950s then. And like when when we were all growing up, everybody, I was involved in it myself, you'd be de- digging at the potatoes. And on the Saturday evening then, Donna would come back around and you'd either get a ton of bags. That's the way it was. Do you want a ton of bags or a half ton of bags? So you got either 20 or 10 bags, whichever you wanted. And they were delivered then on the Saturday evening. So you'd have the potatoes ready. you dig during the week and you'd have the potatoes ready then for the Friday evening. And everybody had a little stand. We had a stand, I remember. There was a ditch by the side of the road and it was just the right height and maybe about four foot wide and it was level at the top. So we used to put the potatoes up there and they'd come on the Friday evening and they'd collect the potatoes and they'd take them in. And um, in the 1950s, around 1950... That's your time. You're coming in now to your time. Well, it would have been. Yeah, it would. It would. I was yeah. a child at the time. Um, potatoes were making £20 a tonne at that time. 20. Now, I suppose 20 pounds... 20 Pounds in 1950 could be the equivalent between five and six hundred. Yeah, to buy a heifer, young heifer. Yeah, no, I'd say it would be in in in, in present. But then, of course, you can't compare. Yeah. Um, and then by 1957, there was over 200 ton of potatoes leaving Ogunalo every week. 200. Over 200 ton of potatoes, and in 1957, they were making at that time. They were making forty pounds a ton, and that was huge money. It was a great income for all the farmers in Ogunlow, and everyone was involved. And as I said earlier on, it was their main income. Yeah, and that was about that was the equivalent of about what about eight thousand that was coming into the parish. Let's yeah. say every every Friday, every weekend. Extraordinary. It was money, yeah. wasn't it? Oh yeah, it was great money. It was brilliant what, money. Was there evidence that? This was contributing to development of agriculture in Uganda. Well, it was. It was in a way, John, because every piece of land that was arable was used. It was all used. And, and um, in, at that time, potatoes were the crop. It was the main income in the parish. Who was buying, by the way, in Limerick? It, they went into the market and... Um, 
don't know who I suppose he delivered to some of the suppliers, the restaurants and things in, inside in town. Yeah. Uh, the main crop would have been pinks. Um, the Aaron Banner then for those uh, for making chips because yeah. they were a, a big spot. And uh, the Aaron Banner would have would have gone to the restaurants, and then the early places they'd have been the Epicures, yes. and they were the three main varieties that uh, were grown in Ogunnalo at the time. So okay. there was the cash. I mean, what strikes me about it is extraordinary amount of money coming in to the parish of. Uh, Ogunlo. Oh, there was. Extraordinary. Yeah, there and, was. I mean, they used to say about Akil that the men sent home the money every Tuesday. The Akil men who were working in London. In London. London okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the wives looked after the money. And I saw it myself that the men who were abroad, okay, were actually. Uh, had their houses very well fitted out. Do you know? They were different. Yeah. Um, painted more frequently. Uh, furniture. Uh, Sweeney's furniture shop in Ackill Island was as good as you get in Limerick. Do you know? Yes. So yeah. when the factory started here in, in, in 58, you saw evidence again of expenditure on housing in Uganda. Was that in any way it, noticeable? It, I suppose it was, but I remember, John, when we were growing up, we'd say our home house at the time was attached house. Um, I remember when we had no running water in it, and uh, but then we got in the water, they put in a, we had the well at the bottom of the field, and yeah. we'd go down every week to draw the water in the bucket from that. But then we got the uh, the water into the house and that's what and I suppose people made they made progress as they saw fit at the time. Mm-hmm. And they yeah, they used the money prudently, I suppose. Prudently. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at that time uh Donahue was taken up about forty ton of potatoes to the Dublin market every week. And 40 tonne, and that was before the Dublin growers got organised. And that was in around 57. And as I said to you, 57, they were making 40 pounds a tonne. And the Dublin growers then got themselves organised and got themselves organised in a big way and they saw potential because they had the type of land that suited the growing of potatoes as well. And um, they got um, they got themselves organised, and by sixty three, around sixty three, they were very well organised, and they they had flooded the market. Limerick market with potatoes, and by sixty three, the price of potatoes had gone down to six pounds a ton. In contrast to. In contrast to, to 40. 57, um, 40 pounds a ton in 57. Can you recall as a childhood? Uh, oh, I do. I remember when it happened indeed, yeah. And that really, it killed the potato market yeah. in Ogunalo. Yeah. Because they just couldn't make it at six pounds a ton. It really wasn't worth their while. Yeah. So... After that, a number of, of farmers still, they grew potatoes, let's say, I suppose up to about 
1910. And then... By the time it came to 2016, there was no farmers at all um, growing potatoes in, in the There was a couple up to 2010, and uh, Tommy Gavin and a couple of more, and they used yeah. to take the place yeah. into Limerick. And, wh- and what about vegetables? Did that ever enter into the scene at all? Well, you see, everybody grew their own, every farmer grew their own vegetables. Yeah. We did at home. You grew your own cabbage and you grow your own parsnips, potatoes and and, and uh, parsnips and onions and you grew, you grew they, they were self-sufficient yeah. because yeah. you didn't go out and buy them, you grew your own. Your own, yeah. Yeah, but it was, um, I suppose... But you never sold uh, uh, veg? No. Carrots or... No, no, no. Uh, no. No, we never, we never, uh, Gunla never went into that market. Potatoes were the, so the, were the main the, product. We're, we're wondering what way the economy in Ogunlo, uh how it reacted to a nosedive potatoes. By the way, where were the seed potatoes? Where, where, where were you buying seed potatoes? Oh, the seed potato? potatoes, we get the certified seed and they came from Donegal. Donegal. Yeah. Yeah. So you get the certified seed then every year. You get as many hundredweights you wanted. Yeah. And... At night time, and usually it was, my mother used to do it, and you sit down by the fire and you cut the skillands. You called it the skillands? The skillands, yeah. yeah. Yes. And um, then they'd be ready, and you go out and till the ground, and they were all sown by hand. And everyone, we all had a, it was a sort of a, 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 an, apron. an apron that was made out yeah. of a bag, and you turned up the ends of it, yeah. and you put in probably about, a stone or a stone and a half of skillands into them. Away you went. You'd, wa- you'd walk along and away you went. You'd yeah. take them down by the way. Fascinating. It yeah. is. It well, is really. Uh, fascinating. So it's, it's, a, it's an amazing story of the of potatoes in Ogunlo. It was, yeah. It, it, it was. And it was, and I suppose it was unique to Ogunlo because of the fact that um, the soil was, the soil was just uh, right. The yeah. And the it's, it's kind of sandy, a good drainage in the soil. Good drainage. And that's what potatoes need. Yes. They don't, uh, heavy soil doesn't suit potatoes. So it was a good drainage. So the soil in Ogunlo was ideal for the growing up potatoes. Drumlin type of... Yeah, it was, yeah. 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 And then after that, they had to change, so they went into um, grass and milk. Milk. And they changed over. So that's the way life goes. You you go with it, you go with something. Yeah, yeah. Was Was there much... Great story. Great story is right, yeah. Did the factory mean anything to it? Oh, it did. There was uh, quite a number of, of farmers at the time um, uh, they, they worked here in the factory. And the factory was huge then. The factory was a huge boon to to the farmers. And, of course, you see, when the potato industry went, the factory sort of started around the same time, you know, in around that time. So the yeah. factory was... They had a weekly income yeah. from the factory as well as the... Working away on the well, farm as well. Working away yeah. on the farm as well, and they combined yeah. both. And yeah. many, many people from... O'Connor worked in the factory as well. Yes, good to have it. Michael, another story that you told us before, on I think it was on around the parishes, maybe when we didn't have much news from O'Connor, and you delved into the past, yeah. uh, was that of Mary Lee? Oh, the famous Mary. Yeah, the famous Mary Lee. Mary was from Corriganore. It was a Patrick and and a Mary Lee. And they had three kids. There was um, Mary and James. They were the oldest. 
and they would have been born before 32. Now, we know that Bridget was born in 33 because she was recorded on the baptism and they started in 32. Now, uh, Mary and James are not in that, so they would have been born before uh, before 32. But it was going back around to being around the... Mary was uh, accused of sheep stealing, right? And she would have been about 18 years at the time, 17 or 18 years of age. And she was accused of stealing a sheep. So the RSC barracks was down in Tinerana at the time. And seemingly they had gone up to try to arrest Mary a couple of times. And they'd gone up during the day. But it seems that she was a great runner. Hmm. And they, they literally couldn't catch her, right? So there was, they were wondering what they could do. And there was a constable at the time, somewhere up around Kildare, and a good runner, and he had won uh, a number of championships from the R- for the RIC. So they made contact with him and they said they'd bring him down to Ogunla for to catch Mary. And they went up himself and the sergeant went up on this day for to arrest Mary. And I believe that he thought that this was a bit of a joke, bringing him all the way down from Kildare for to catch this 18-year-old young lady below in O'Gunnell. Yes. So they went up to Corrigano, and they came in along the road. I know the road they came in, and they came into Lee's house, and there was a garden beside it, and Mary was in the garden. She was digging potatoes. And he just got up in the ditch, and he said, Is your name Mary Lee's? And she says... Why are you asking? <laughs> and she said, I'm here to arrest you. And John Cooney told me the story, and I'll tell you the story now as John told it to me. And Mary turned around and she pulled up her skirt and she says, you can kiss my ass, she says, <laughs> and she took off. <laughs> and he took off after her, but he didn't get, seemingly he didn't get within an ass's roar of Mary. Yeah. So he had, to, he had to make his way back up to Kildare, a very dejected <laughs> and humiliated man. He couldn't catch you, Lady Blow, you know, going along. But it seems that Mary knew at that time that the, the game was up with her because they'd probably come back at night time when she was in bed and they'd, they'd get her. So she came home that evening and um, packed her case and she left home. And she made her way to Gort. And she took lodgings in Gort. And of all places she took lodgings, she took lodgings beside the RIC barrack in Gort. And the woman of the house worked in the barracks. Now, she wasn't using her own name at that stage. And after about two or three days, could have been maybe three or four days, the woman of the house came into her midday and she says, would your name be Mary Lee? And she said, if it is, she said, you'd better go because they're preparing a warrant outside for your arrest and they're going to come in and arrest you. So Mary packed her bag and left and she was never heard of again after that. Now, I would presume that she probably made contact 
with her own family, but she never came back to Corriganoe after that. She couldn't come back. And her younger sister, Bridget, was 16 years of age at the time. And we sort of think that when they couldn't catch, when the RIC, when they couldn't catch Mary and Mary was gone, they decided they'd close the case and they'd arrest her and convict her younger sister, Bridget, which is what they did. And she was sentenced to seven years in uh, transportation in Tasmania uh, when she was 16 years of age. And, you know, if, if you stop and think about it, it took six weeks at that time for a ship to go from Ireland to Tasmania, and she'd have been down at the hold yes. in chains with the rest of the convicts for six weeks, a 16-year-old girl. Right. So anyway, she did her seven years in Tasmania, and there was another guy from Dublin at the time, John Malai, and John got seven years uh, in Tasmania for stealing a sheet of a line. And they met while they were in detention in, in Tasmania. Yeah. And they got married at that stage before they left Tasmania. And they had one child, I know, before they left Tasmania, but they went to New Zealand. And when they went to New Zealand, they went as John and Bridget Kelly, right? They didn't choose his name, Malloy, and the Lee name wasn't mentioned either at all. And he joined, the, he went um, mining, gold mining, uh, for a while. And then he joined the militia in uh, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> I think it was in about 1867, sometime around then, he, um, they, were, he, they were out of manoeuvres one night and he was crossing a river and he was drowned. And he left then, he left um, Bridget. She had seven children at the time. The oldest was 14 and the youngest was six months. And she was on her own. And... All she could, all she was given at that time, she was given uh, one month's food from the militia. That she got no pension, no money, absolutely nothing. So she was there and she had to make a living. She had to make her own living for the kids and rear the kids. She, it seems she was an absolutely wonderful woman. And she became, she took up um, midwifery. Right? She wasn't a nurse, but she started delivering the babies. And she became very, very well known uh, in that part of New Zealand mm-hmm. as the midwife. And she used to travel then um, on horseback around to the houses um, for to deliver the babies. Of course, it was all home deliveries at that time. And I presume at that time for her, the oldest used to mind the youngest when she was gone. But she was quite a formidable lady. And to carry on with the story then, um, she died in 1916. She, when she, she died in 1916. But a great-granddaughter of hers, it was in 2008, 
they came to a gun alone and they came to Tumgraney here first and they were looking for the leads in Corrigano and they came to Tumgraney but they thought the records would be in Tumgraney but Corrigano would have been in the parish of Agunalo so all the birth records would have been in the parish of Agunalo they didn't realise that at the time so they came to Agunalo and they met um, it was Maura Nihil they met in Agunalo they went down there at the church and Maura said to go back to um, Tumgraney that the records would be in they should be in Tumgraney and she left him, they went up the road, and then Maura was thinking, she ran up after him, she said, you know what she'll do? She said, go up across the road, she said to Mike Mack, he might, he might know. So they did, and that's how I met him. And they had been to Corrafin at the time, so they knew there was three children, but they didn't know any of the story. So they came into the kitchen with me, and um, they told me what they were looking for, Mary Lees. And I hadn't known about a Bridget Lee's sister because John hadn't told me now about John had only told me about uh, Mary. So I said to myself, you know, will I give him the story? Mm. And you know, the, you can't you can't obliterate history. History is history and what has happened has happened. So I said to myself, look, I'll give them the story that John gave to me and I did. And they were gobsmacked. Yes. They never knew anything about it at all. She never had told any of the family about um, about her sister Mary about her sister Mary or the fact Bridget never told them that she came to Tasmania as a convict mm. or John came to Tas- John Malai came as a convict Pickle. they never knew anything about that yes. so they went back to New Zealand and um, they did some research on the convicts of course the records were there and they found everything. They couldn't believe it. And um, they had Dennis Boggs and Ingeri was her name. Um, they had three children. They had two girls and a boy. And you know the fun thing about it? One of the girls, Alison, was a great runner. So you can't <laughs> beat the genes. Yeah. And in actual fact, she had... Um, she represented, she was going to America in 2013 to represent New Zealand in a triathlon. And they went to America and they went about two weeks early so that she become acclimatised and uh, she'd do her training over there and get ready for the race. And while they were there, didn't Ingeri got a brain hemorrhage? The mother got a brain hemorrhage and she died. She died within the week. And they brought her back to um, they brought her back to New Zealand. They buried her in New Zealand. But um, they tried to get um, they went out then on what's happened the internet uh, to get try and get a family reunion. And as it turned out, they had so many that came back of relations. They couldn't get a venue large enough to hold it, so they had to cancel that. And um, I still... Dennis makes contact with me every Christmas. He uh, still... And uh, he's still there. 
great man he just is sailing extraordinary it's an amazing story extraordinary Michael it you was, know? Yeah. and Mary Lee was never heard of again no no one knows where Mary ended up and where she went she obviously changed her name and, and or she would have changed her name but as I was saying earlier on it is highly likely she made contact with her mother and father probably by letter but she never came back to Corrigano and there was nothing on James nobody seems to know where James went more than likely he he left Ireland as well possibly but Mary was never heard of after that again Is Mary's original house as a child where she was born and, and reared is that's, that still that's above yeah above um, there. Wh- when they arrived in to in 2008 I took them up to Corrigano and we met uh, Mikey Perrell there yes. and Mikey was farming the land so from there we showed him where the, his, he showed I was there with them and um, there were three narrow fields so he said you tre- see the three narrow fields over there he said the one on the right hand side he said there's a, a cowl of a house he said above in the top right hand corner of that he said that was Lee's what did you call it? A cowl. A cowl of a house. The remains of a house. Cowl. Yeah, a cowl. It's a, yeah. an Irish name, John, I would say. Oh, yeah. but I, I An old cowl of a house. An old cowl yeah, of a house. The remains of a house. Is that anywhere near Sunny Wedge's old house? Um, it, would be f- it was farther up than Sunny farther Wedge's. Up. Yes. Into, the, into the valley? Into the valley. Did you ever hear, the hear of the valley being called Blackguard Valley? I know, but there was a place called the Blackguard Hill, and that is out, it's just out on the rise of the hill before you go down, we'll say, into a gunnelow, the Blackguard Hill. And how it got his name was, see, this is the story now that I was told, that um, there was a a, a man and his wife, they lived, I'm just going back now, I suppose, into the 1800s, and he lived in a small house just underneath the hill there. He had no land and he didn't have a bank of turf either. And when the lads would be coming out in the evening with the horse and car or the ass and car with the turf, he'd go up and he'd have a couple of kirans and he'd throw the kirans at them. And, of course, they had the full sense of turf (laughs) and they'd crush him with the turf (laughs) inside the field. And when they were all gone then, he'd gather up the turf and he'd his bag of turf for the night and he'd go home. Now, that's the story that I got. And that's, that's how it. it became known as the Blackguard Hill. Well, I sat, I sat with, uh, on the wall uh, with Sonny Walsh uh, years and years and years ago. And uh, we, were, we were looking out towards Kilban and uh, the Broadway yes. side. He said, he said, John, he says, that was a very lively run there. I said, what? He said, it was a very lively run. The Kilbans had stepping stones across the wettish rivers okay but they only knew where the stones were so when the R- when the RIC would come up to try to put an end to this sheep stealing okay they um, uh, failed uh, to do so because the Kilbans would always beat them on the rent. They, they, <laughs> they, they, they had the stepping stones where, across the woodland. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I had a tape recorder with me and uh, we agreed, I think this is about 1968, about 1968, 69. Um, and uh, I started the recording and the battery ran out. And we'll come back, says Sonny. Okay, only delighted to facilitate 
uh, more storytelling. And uh, and that's because of the kill bands, uh, stealing sheep on the uh, no. on the ups, on the Carrigno side. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, that's funny, you know, uh, his son, Jimmy Welsh, I was telling Jimmy the story, yeah. and Jimmy came back to me then after that. You know, he said there was sheep stealing. It used to happen here. So he said, yeah. you know, whether Mary stole the sheep or whether she didn't, that's, yes. you know, but that's, you're, yeah. that's history now. But you're McMahon, the McMahon's up in, 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 in Capabahan. Yes, uh, that was another very interesting another th- story. Three, one of the McMahon's and two others. They were in the middle of the flipping famine. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. Plenty of sheep out in the mountain. Yeah. And the carcass was found. And Michael O'Gorman, nearly 100 years later, okay, gets a, a contact from Australia to know, was there ever uh, characters, naming the characters, okay, who were sent to, um, uh, were sent to Botany Bay for... Uh, 15 years that meant life really yes. how are you going to get back um, and here was one of the descendants contacting Michael and he developed a lovely relationship with him the material must be in, in his papers okay yes. but Blackguards Valley Corrie <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you something <laughs> anyway Listen, we've we've gone way over oh. time, Michael. I, you asked me yesterday on the phone how long, and I said, you know, I said fifteen to twenty minutes. But of course, uh, you can't stop an interesting no, that story. It was a fascinating story, Michael. Uh, what about the actual recording of that uh, in written form? Did anybody ever write it up? They didn't. No. Did you know the film in that? No. Yeah. Isn't there it, there it, is a documentary, sir. A documentary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you know what will we do a documentary this year on it we could I suppose we could yeah it's important to record history it is you know because history dies with people that's the unfortunate thing about it Sonny died yeah before I could get back to him yeah my own neighbour Tim Lynch if I only had a, a fraction of what he told me yeah yeah that's true Okay, Michael, so grateful to you for coming up. Oh, I mean, it's been such an interesting um, chat and uh, hopefully our listeners have enjoyed it as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Thanks very much. Thank oh, you, Michael. Michael.